How big is the mental contrast between what I want to do and where I am now? So what are the things that I need to put in place in order to bridge that gap between the opportunity that I see and my capabilities that I have right now? looking at what you need to have in your toolbox to be able to seize on spontaneous opportunities and what I'm really interested in is hearing from from Yuta first of all as to what courage really is Ooh. okay because obviously to seize that opportunity you need courage mm-hmm. so courage is about heart, right? So it comes from the French word cur, it's a Latin word. And I love to conceptualize or to, you know, conceptualize in my head, um, talk about courage as being something of the heart or of the body, really. And so it's in my world or in my understanding, less intellectual um, and more experiential. And when you ask me what courage is my mind jumps to confidence somehow and I don't quite know why but so perhaps for me the definition that comes up for me as you're talking about seizing opportunities and acting on things that we might feel drawn towards um, what would make us feel confident and feel courageous enough like strong enough it's just it's about strength of heart right that's what courage really means um to go there and as far as i understand the idea of moving towards things that we might be afraid of the act of doing you know acting toward moving towards generates the confidence to keep us going so it's not that we almost need to start with courage or with confidence, but we need to do something. And then as a result, we get courage and we get confidence. So mm-hmm. we think of courage and confidence backwards. We think that it's the ingredient, but I actually think it's the output of doing something, even though I'm afraid of it. That's really nice. I mean, th- one of the definitions I like most about of courage that I've read is that courage is the ability to exert one's will in the face of risk. Mm. And that's kind of why I I started with this segue, because I think that there's a huge amount of risk in the world right now, way more risk than we've most of us have experienced, even those of us that have lived through financial crises, 9-11, all of the, you know, the big defining moments of the last 40 plus years. And right now, there's a risk that we, there's lots of risks that we don't know. There's lots of complexity that none of us have certainly ever experienced before. But in amongst that risk, there's, there's opportunity. And I wonder, uh, I wonder if 
uncovering that opportunity needs something special. And I sort of like to throw that open to, to the rest of the team here. And that for me, almost when there's, when there's a risk, when there's an obstacle in the way, there is, there is inherently an opportunity whether to, to thrive, to, to learn that there's, there's some opportunity in there to whether you win or you fail. Um, but if you fail, you need to do so in a way that you learn something. And I'm sure there's something from the world of strategy that talks to how you how you experiment through your way through risk. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> there's there's no shortage of uh, literature and content and stories and things in relation to you know, failing fast, failing cheap, failing forward, and failing forward is 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 the discipline of learning from failure and making sure that if you're not getting the ROI or things aren't going the way it's meant to, or it's an outright failure. At least it has been for a greater good, in this case, knowledge. There is also a relationship between what courage is and the value of the opportunity. If in moments of crisis, I have the opportunity to completely, I don't know, in an organizational context, uh, re-architect my manufacturing uh, completely change my ops, change my business model and my finance structures and uh, get ready for the next cycle of growth. So great. I've done all these things. I want to be right because absolutely there is a strong relationship between, uh, you know, the risk associated with the opportunity. It needs to be assessed. But when you seize an opportunity that is low risk, are you just acting on the opportunity or is there are you actually being courageous? I'll give a great example that's coming to mind. I remember a couple of years ago, Twitter was really, you know, one of the main, you know, becoming one of the main um, communication tools online. And I think it was McDonald's. They were pumping out all sorts of tweets and they had a bot clearly doing it. And the bot one morning pumped out some rubbish error. It's like, you know, it had the topic of, you know, like free Sundays today. And then it had, you know, insert code here or something like it was just the bot who fired out some error. And you look at it and you go, okay, well, obviously, you know, the bot is shitting the bed. Great. How do we react? And as a competitor, I remember that Wendy's jumped online and just said, oh, you know, you know, your Twitter feed's broken just like your ice cream machine. Like, slap, great. I'm like, that's kind of cool. It got retweeted. And it was an opportunistic response that had low, low, you know, to a degree, low connotations to it. But it's, it's making something very human. And if you have that human connection to the audience, and it was retweeted everywhere and lots of good things and everyone had a good laugh. But I think there is something in relation to the inherent opportunity that you're looking at, how you can link it back to some form of human connection might, you know, might decrease the courage required or decrease the risk because you're talking to the human as opposed to something much more severe, like, you know, re-architecting operations. Oh, yes. I can see your brain spinning. <laughs> yes. I like that because we're talking about courage and risk. And we're talking about effectively containing the risk or managing the fear. I think we need to talk about fear as well when we're talking about courage. And we need to contain the fear of the risk of the opportunity. Maybe not, maybe the two, two types of fear, right? The opportunity is not big enough or the risk of failure is too high. Like, you know, I'm expending energy that's not necessary or like I shouldn't really spend energy on this opportunity. The opportunity cost is, is it big or low? You guys tell me. Um, but also uh, I could really get hurt. And so Adam, you've just said 
making it human, creating human connection lowers the risk. It makes, it makes it easier for me to feel connected and to feel safe, even though I will not know the answer to those two questions, to those two risks, right? Either the opportunity is not big enough or the risk is too high. If I feel connected with you, if I feel psychologically safe, if I feel like you're not going to swipe me or you're not going to laugh behind my back, you're not going to badmouth me like Wendy swiped McDonald's, I can handle it a bit better. So the humanity, adding a bit of a humanity is, I think, the first practical takeaway that we could bank if we wanted to bank something from this conversation. What do you think? Um, well, I, I read something really interesting just this morning um, about one of the impacts of this current crisis in that typically human beings, when faced with the unknown, with fear, we gather together because there's safety and power in numbers. And right now we're being able to ask to, to social distance and I, you know, one of my biggest concerns in that case, if I play that logically through, is that if we are being asked to isolate, uh, we're then being asked to be, for everybody to be more resilient, to stand on their own, to show more courage. And does that mean that we're then looking at countries, organizations, peoples that are less inclined to, to exhibit the courage? to seize opportunity. I, th I think this also kind of goes down to something we discussed in the last discussion in relation to uncertainty and what is the role of social proofing in being opportunistic? If, you know, for example, if, if from our national leaders, we're hearing conservatism, batten down the hatches, ride this out, look at your feet, kind of similar to what happened after the global financial crisis is that when liquidity dried up, everyone was told to look at their feet. When liquidity came back into the market, everyone forgot how to make a growth decision. So, you know, a three-year pause ended up turning up to be like a four-and-a-half-year pause because everyone had to find the confidence within themselves to respond to the new the new reality. So there was this lag effect because everyone had been, um, you know, managing by P&L. Then when that frees up to be like, okay, let's catch up, let's put our foot on the gas here, there is a delay in the people's behavior of responding to it. So the inverse of this is trying to identify opportunity in times of crisis. And there's no shortage of literature that says that organizations who take good, ambitious initiatives that are obviously still well, well risk rated and managed and, you know, all the common sense stuff in times of crisis have a significantly higher probability of leapfrogging their competitors. So the way I think about it from a strategy perspective is, okay, well, what is the cost of not doing this? What is the cost of inaction? What is the cost of me sitting here in conservative mindset, potentially increasing the risk of being Amazonized and, and having, you know, disruption come through and pull the rug out from beneath me? So I also think there's a role here to f tap into courage as a response to what happens if we don't. And, and I think, you know, corporate history particularly is littered with examples of organizations who didn't and are now gone. So there's lessons to be learned from there as well. I think it's a really interesting, um, motivator, but because you're alluding to a really useful, helpful, powerful and, and practical motivator 
the, the FOMO, fear of missing out, right? The, the fear of not doing it and almost the, the motivation not to miss an opportunity, not to be left behind or, you know, for somebody else to get a piece of the pie. Cause it's quite, that's a really nice, healthy, competitive edge that we can tap into. And I want to go back to what Matt said in this context, because Matt was talking about resilience and that we're currently in a isolation stage, but we, we don't really, we're not really encouraged to properly isolate, even though we're encouraged to physically isolate and to physically, you know, have distance from each other. And I actually think, you know, resilience is driven by uh, is more, it's more important for social factors to be right for me to fee feel resilient than even my own self, my soup in my head being okay or being calm. Um, so resilient, my resilience is driven by absence of hostility in my environment and by a dependable su support sy system more than even my self-regulating powers. And so uh, I can do a bit of self-regulation during this time, but more importantly, I need to seek a supportive, conducive, action-oriented, opportunity-seeking uh, environment. And we are actually quite good at being virtual in our heads. You know, we create realities in our heads anyway, without sitting with people in person. And so um, and literally a bunch of my students and uh, fellow researchers are doing research now into how does the virtuality of our business environment change the way we do it. And we actually think that not that much will be different because feeling virtually connected is not that much less value valuable than feeling physically as if the three of us were sitting in a room together. If, if the, it's the right type of connection. And that's where this word psychological safety comes back in. And psychological safety means nothing more than I trust that you're not going to give me a, a figurative swipe. And I respect that you are as valuable as I am. And, you know, we are respectful of each other's screen time, turn time. And you're respectful of my dignity as a human being. Um, and so trust and respect are the two things that make me feel safe, resilient, and capable of, of jumping. And I don't need to be in your living room to do that. Yeah. I'm interested in kind of unpacking that a bit more is when you said it, my brain went, uh, I don't know. Does psychological, does having psychological safety push the way that people see new opportunities towards conservatism? Um, because if we're all, cause I look at psychological safety, if there is a group think mentality, suddenly we're falling into a herd, mm -hmm. a herd bias. Like we're all thinking the same thing. And are we all norming towards the mean and we're losing you know, the ambitious executive or the ambitious, you know, president or the ambitious, whatever, the ambitious leader who can actually do something transformational with the opportunity that he or she identifies? At what point in time do I need to have the internal courage to disconnect from the other people going, yep, I understand this, but we're going to go for this. And yeah. here's, you know, we're going to mitigate these risks mm -hmm. and then I need to kind of sell. Uh, execution safety back to everyone to make them psychologically safe to commit to the execution. I love that you're bringing this up. Um, and it's, it's a really, it's quite a, an important distinction. But so there's a, there's a two by two in this, in this line of research, right? And the two by two is, um, how deep are the connections and how open and how, you know, how 
constructive and open-minded are the, the discussions. And the group think quadrant is in the shallow, um, shallow conversations and kind of need for like, uh, feeling like similar. You like, you know, I, I, I avoid going into difficult conversations because I have a strong, uh, it's the need for harmony. Sorry. I, I probably haven't explained that dimension very well. You know, need for harmony or really, uh, wanting to, to create, get the job done, have an effective solution. And if I have a great need for harmony, I am likely to have groupthink, especially if I'm not able to have an open-minded critical conversation about what's going on. But if you think about a psychological safe group, it is a little bit like being with old friends that you trust and that not only have your back, but that catch you when you're doing something stupid. So like school friends, good school friends for us now as, dare I say, are we middle-aged? Do we call ourselves middle-aged already, guys? Yeah, <laughs> Terrible, right? But so <laughs> having friends, having had friends for 20, 25 years who, where we can hear when they're being critical and where we can confide if we need a bit of social support. That's the two dimensions that I'm talking about that generate psychological safety. So this is about being constructive, but this is about curious, right? Open-minded, but it, this is also about being critical and not being afraid of having a conversation yeah. where you're saying, no, I disagree with you, but you have the relational security, normally based on years of having sniffed each other out through through going through thick and thin, to say I separate the the topic from the discussion, and with groupthink you you fuse the two think the two things. Ah. So if I criticize the topic, I am inherently criticizing you, Adam Cox, mm. or you, Mike yeah. Wilkinson. So that's the distinction between groupthink and psychological safety. What does that mean for the courage to act on opportunities in this day and age? I think it also, uh, yeah, what, what does it mean? I think there's a piece that leads to identity as well. Like, I'm really going to enjoy this conversation because I can see we have we have the courage piece, we have the opportunity piece, and then we have the what does it mean to pull it off piece. <laughs> and, like, from a courage piece, some people would align being courageous as an identifier with their identity. Um, strong, courageous, wrestle the tiger, whatever it happens to be, great. You know, there is there is there is a particular image when I close my mind, for better or worse. When I think of a courage individual, I can see that person, and he or she is not always right, but he or she is one of their own conviction. It's it, it's a commitment to not just the opportunity, but to what the impact of successfully implementing the opportunity actually means. And this is where I think I'm interested in the relationship between the psychology of being courageous in times of crisis to do really good things, or, you know, you can equally be courageous by standing still. Mm -hmm. You know, making a decision to let the opportunity pass is equally as courageous as going after it. I think just being able to rigorously and robustly go through and evaluate the opportunity to make a decision in a logical, robust way is kind of where my brain anchors towards kind of, okay, well, this is kind of the, the meat of the conversation. And then the second part of this is also how long it actually takes to build the courage enough to go out and do it. And particularly in moments in crisis, look, I, I think, you know, 
when we talk about jumping on an opportunity, I'm talking weeks and months, not quarters and years. So there is this kind of, you know, lean, get your trusted people in a psychological safe environment to go, look, this is what I'm thinking. Here's the opportunities. These are the trade-offs. Do we have the ability to execute it? We need to work that out. Let's work that out and put that as an input before we go, no, no go. Um, but it's, it's this, the relationship between courage and the relationship between, I don't know, an organization or a collective of people having this seize the day mentality because Generally speaking, as long as there is the robustness in the opportunity evaluation and our ability to execute and it makes sense and we map it to our strategy to make sure we're not going in a crazy direction, it really comes down to leadership going, yep, we're going to do this and we're going to pull it off. And, you know, the example I think of is, you know, Elon making, you know, all these cars working 24 hours a day because they want to make X number of cars a week. I can't even remember what the numbers were. And, you know, the unions are screaming and the staff are screaming and uh, the street is screaming and everyone's screaming. And it's like, yeah, but we're going to do it. And, you know, he's a guy who's hell bent on, on, you know, he demonstrates all the courage for better or worse. He has self-conviction for better or worse. And he's focused on the impact for better or worse. And it's understanding kind of what are the characteristics, I think is my question back. What are the characteristics within the leader that we need to either foster or build to have someone be courageous in a time like this? Mm. Yeah, so that's a really interesting, interesting question. And I think, you know, if I look around this this small gathering here, I think we've all made one or two decisions that maybe go against the grain. I mean, it's just setting up a, a mindfulness research group um, and looking into areas that are somewhat contentious at times. Um, you know, Adam leaving a, a big, you know, a, you know, a high flying corporate strategy job to, to go out on his own. And, and I did something, you know, similar to set up my own marketing consultancy. Um, you know, we've all taken some fairly, um, what you might consider counterintuitive steps to, you know, to, to look after where our direction in life wants to go to. Um, and I, and I kind of wonder how, you know, that sort of seems almost seems to be against the herd mentality and having that conviction to, to follow something that is, uh, that you believe in that maybe others would question, you know, the, the security of a, you know, of a regular income. And so I wonder how much of this courage and, and leadership comes down to the entrepreneur, because, you know, Adam, you highlighted Elon Musk, who's probably one of the most successful entrepreneurs of, of late. I mean, you've also got people like Bezos and, and Gates and a few others that are, you know, eminently successful entrepreneurs. Um, but if you look at that sort of that mold, there's there's definitely something amongst them all that ties them together, which is that hmm. that fearlessness to not just get stuff done, but to have opinions and to and to also fail. And not to worry about failing um, in the fact that they're going to make it a success, uh, whether they meet that target or not. Oh, I love this um, because um, as I listen to you, Matt, I'm thinking about this is now, I think the conversation is shifting towards decision making. I think, you know, it's the decision. Do I go? Do I leave it? Do I take it? Do I leave it? That opportunity. And the, the science that I'm very excited about that is about how do we make good decisions in the moment of 
uncertainty and, and complexity is moving towards um, talking about not facts or figures driving what the decision should be because we have the, the world is too complex and the risks are too unknowable for us to calculate and make risk calculations of likely likelihood or probability. So the only logical path that we can go into if we are deciding is this a an opportunity or a risk worth taking is to go into values and into identity. And that's what, what Adam was saying, uh, comes, comes back. So what is a values based decision? A values based decision is a decision of where I know who I am and what excites me and what is important to me, what is valuable to me. And there's no right or no wrong in having a certain value. So it is okay to be materialistic and to seek world domination if this is something that is valuable to you. But the more people explore what values are the ones that they hold dear, the more they almost, they normally move away even from material values and the more they, they go into, um, like, um, guidelines of qualities of being and doing that guide behavior like a compass. And that then makes it less difficult and more easy to make a decision of whether to go for something or not, because the failure that the impending failure or the likely failure or the possible failure might be more easy to accept if I'm actually moving towards something that I value and I clearly know that I'm doing this because it's important to me. It is who I am. I'm, I, in my case, I really want to know where the opportunities are with mindfulness science. And I really want to debunk the myths about bad mindfulness science. And that's why I'm doing mindfulness research. And along the way, if I find out something that is either boring or not exciting, or that is even wrong about my previous assumptions, it is in the interest of the compass that I have, the value of, for me, finding out stuff about this area that I care about is really valuable, independent of whether I succeed in the short term or, or not. What do you guys think? Mm. I like it. It's within the individual, the, the, the leader perspective, absolutely makes perfect sense. When we put that kind of structure over the top of an organizational perspective, which, you know, if we're having this conversation about, look, we're going to learn lots of things, it might fail, and I've got 150,000 staff on the books, um, you know, stakes is high. So it's, it's how do we then bring balance, not to normalize opportunity evaluation, but to be robust in making sure that if it is unreasonably ambitious, what are the things we have to stop doing to create the capacity to go out and do it? I was talking to a friend of mine who works um, who works in an investment bank in the United States a couple of days ago, and he was saying that there's a lot of large organizations that are running around looking for very small organizations for acquisition um, that have very unique capability sets, particularly in the spaces of robotics and AI and these sort of things, because they're, they're seeing the opportunity and they're going, okay, some of these organizations are screaming, let's pick them up. Uh, let's, let's build a bank of all the capabilities that we need for the longer term. Now, they've identified the opportunity and they're going, okay, this isn't an execution now, but this is an opportunity within the opportunity, you know, going, you know, some serious digital transformation. I know that phrase is 
killed to death. Um, but, you know, in the true sense of the word of the next kind of 15 to 20 years of how business particularly is going to evolve or society as a whole. And, you know, the opportunity is, okay, does, you know, this is where we want to go. This is where our competitors want to go. If we want to start leapfrogging and getting good competitive advantage and unique differentiation, um, we don't have to incrementalism within how we get the capabilities that we need. We're after something seriously ambitious. So, you know, what's the dream list? Writing it down. They're now walking into investment banks and solicitors and going, hey, um, these are the 15 targets we're interested in. Go talk to them. And there's a lot of activity now in relation to kind of getting ahead of that curve. Because when I think about it and I kind of match the operationalization of opportunistic behavior versus the um, structure of what it means to be courageous, I think it's, I think the bridge is something to do with knowledge. It's like a, you know, we need to capture the knowledge, we need to refine the knowledge, and then we need to synthesize the knowledge into something that then feeds into the decision. And that's what brings equilibrium to someone who is hideously ambitious, all the courageous, all the right traits, and something that is right. And that kind of aligns to purpose, which is kind of where mm-hmm. you were going, Yuta, mm-hmm. in relation to identity. I'm, I'm kind of dropping the word purpose mm-hmm. next to that. Mm-hmm. Values and purpose are similar. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And then if we can kind of swing that forward. And then finally, if we can bring the organization with us to go, yeah, look, we're going to put someone on Mars. I know we keep going back to Elon, but you know, there's, there's many other organizations doing billions of amazing things that are incredibly ambitious and they're bringing the people along with them. That's, you know, the dark art of leadership and communications and empathy and, you know, a, a lot of the things that within communication and, and, and psychology really are kind of the backbone behind groups of people doing amazing things. I mean, I think there's a, there's, for me, there's a bit of a difference between um, purpose and values. So I have a set of values I try to live by. Mm-hmm. Um one of which, ironically, would be courage. You know, courage, and you know, you can't be courageous without fear. So please don't think that I'm fearless. Um, but it's almost like partly, I almost see fear as something that should be looked at in the face and countered. Um, which doesn't mean to say that I will always be courageous by no stretch of the imagination. Please think that I'm saying that, but it's something that I aspire to. Um, but you know, when I look at purpose. My purpose isn't to be courageous. My purpose is more to help people change the world. Um, so a lot of the companies I work with are doing amazing things in, um, you know, in the life sciences and technology space where people are on a daily basis changing people's lives, whether they're making them safer because their computers are more secure or whether they're helping people to get better diagnoses. Um, you know, some of the companies I'm working with are, are working, you know, on things, you know, to help solve the pandemic crisis. And so you start looking at that. And so my purpose is to, to just help them reach people and to communicate with their audiences. So that's quite a different thing. And I wouldn't say there's anything courageous in that, apart from perhaps some of the decisions I've taken on the route to get to that point. And the way that you speak when you speak about purpose I, what I just heard is stronger than what you, when you speak about courage. Mm. So can purpose bring out the courage? So if Mm -hmm. I'm an organization, I have a, I have a strategy, but I can really ramp and be ambitious in that strategy. I then have to look at my identity and go, okay, well, is, you know, is this my once in a lifetime moment? So does having clarity of purpose 
breed courage. Mm-hmm. I have a in my head. Uh, it, it, you know, if I were to draw what you guys just talked about in a theoretical framework, I would put purpose on top, and I would say purpose is the why, right? It's the meaning, and it's the it's almost the existential reason, like why the hell? If I'm allowed to say that, why the hell am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I getting up, right? And so, and we are meaning making machines, and so th- without being clear on the why, are we even? Getting off our butts and and seizing opportunities in this climate, we need to be clear. We need to absolutely be clear about what's the meaning, what's the purpose underneath, why we're even trying to to you know act on spontaneous opportunities in the first place. If that's not clear, the whole motivation to do things is is weak, and it is shallow, and then it leads to you know all sorts of dysfunctional counter you know counter factual outcomes but so if we say purpose is on top it's the why the values are then the uh, so the way we define values in psychology is saying it's qualities of being and doing it's like the how how do i do things how do i want to be seen to be doing things so that i sleep well at night so if i value respect if i value uh, compassion and kindness and maybe prosocial behavior which is stuff that i tend to value um it is, it guides my actions by moderating, by changing what I do in line with this compass of how do I want to live my life? Because if I want to sleep safe at night and I am clear about how I want to lead my life, then I have a bit of a guideline for more, almost more lower level decisions than the big purpose decision to make. And then if those things are clear, then I can define what actions I want to do. And then it should become easier. And I'm doing this theoretical model because we're talking about the decisions that we want to take, right? The decisions that are worth facing the fear and taking and having a bit of courage and the decisions where we're saying, nah, not that important. Not that, you know, it's just not, you know, not exciting enough, not important enough. I'm not motivated enough. Like, you know... (laughs) Naomi Campbell, I don't get out of bed for that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're absolutely right. What you've painted is, again, it's, you know, is is the opportunity push or pull? Mm-hmm. Is the opportunity, you know, all the upside or the cost of inaction? And I think, you know, being able to clearly define both sides of the coin when it comes to decision making what is the cost of inaction? What is the cost if we let this go? What is the cost if our biggest competitor or mm-hmm. another country or whatever happens to do this? And then start almost, you know, scenario playing it out. And we're not going to go down a, part, a conversation of scenario planning. It, it, it is one of the things that should feed into good decision making to go, okay, clear definition of what if X happens. So at least then you can start to appreciate the uncertainties, the, the risks of, you know, um, it's like a good multivariate analysis. You know, if something moves, everything else moves in different directions. And if we're talking big, big, like, you know, gameplay decisions here that, you know, we're putting the family farm on, we want to understand it. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's that role of knowledge that that, that that then feeds in. But I also think from the decision-making perspective, of, okay, how do we as you know, individuals, a group of people, an organization, a government start thinking about making those decisions? There needs to be a very clear, sharp 
process in which to put that thinking through. Because at least you know, so many of the boardrooms I've been in over the years have been talking about the same opportunity years on years on years on years. And then you see new player, competitor X, you know, bring it to market and then everyone starts screaming at each other. Yeah. Because I don't know. And I, I don't know if that's, you know, the operational realities, they weren't the right organization to jump on it. I don't know if it's that lacked courage to actually kind of go and work it out. And, you know, most things in life are a trade-off decision. You know, what are we going to stop doing to create the capacity mm. to go off and do this? What is the internal will of the organization to go and do this? And generally speaking, no one has ever looked at what is the negative business case of us not doing this. Mm. And that's where you end up with um, post-decision regret. Yeah, and that's where you end up. And and that's where in the, you're in the world of uh, uh, sorry if you're fans of of Tom Peters from Good to Great in the world of um, believing that A causes B when actually ten years later we realize A had nothing to do with B right yep. and so we we believe that by being courageous we are invincible but actually. All sorts of other things for the short term made us invincible and that, but are actually not valid and not really reliable criteria for decision making. So I'm, I'm going to pick up on that because I really like the what if scenario planning approach to decision making in this uncertainty, right? In this world of uncertainty that we're in right now. And in this, there, there might be an opportunity, but there might also be too big a risk associated with it. And. The um, really cool social science coming out of NYU from a couple, um, two German researchers whose names are terribly difficult to pronounce for Americans and for Anglos, but maybe that's what puts an extra smile on my face. They are, they are uh, Gabriele Oettingen and Peter Golwitzer, Peter Golwitzer and Gabriele Oettingen in American. They are, they have systematically debunked the myth that you don't need to do what if scenario planning when you have big goals to pursue and all you have to do is think positive. So they are the, the systematic antidote to positive thinking and visualizing for success and believing that if we are, you know, if we are strong and we have a couple of successes behind our back, nothing can fail us. And so their research, research goes into two, two big strands. One is, um, the, the mental contrasting, Gabriella Oettingen talks about mental contrasting. It's a bit like Gary Klein's pre-mortem, where you are mm -hmm. basically saying, yeah. imagine, because we are meaning-making machines, we're imagining machines, imagine we will have failed. Um, what could have been the contributing factors to us failing? And she actually makes it maybe a bit more practical because it's really, really uncomfortable for people to do pre-mortems because yeah, they just so don't like feeling in imagining why I will have failed in the future and what could have, what could I possibly have overlooked? It's a real mind twist for people to, to mm. do that. But what she says with mental contrasting, what if this is an, a what if scenario, Adam? Um, it is the, the difference between the desired future and my reality in the present moment. How big is the mental contrast between what I want to do and where I am now? So mm -hmm. what are the things that I need to put in place in order to bridge that gap between the opportunity that I see and my ca capabilities that I have right now? That's Gabriella Oettingen. And her partner, Peter Golwitzer, has then 
uh, turned this into if then strategies. He calls this, yeah. he calls this implementation intention. So he says he doesn't even say if when, because the German language is actually again a bit more descriptive of what is. He says when then, when I get yeah. derailed, when we encounter this problem, we will, what is our strategy that we will for now plan and doing? And so, it's, and I like that it's not if then planning, but when then planning, because it makes it almost more permissible that we're going to run into problems. And yeah. we're saying, I'm going to be a little bit lazy. And this is just me talking about individual psychology, but you guys are more strategic. You know, we are going to have resourcing problems. We are going to have other strategic problems. What are we planning to do then? So those mental contrasting and strategies to stop us from, from thinking positive as our main strategy for success are useful and they are, they're creating more solid decision-making paths. I, I completely agree. Um, and actually, it's really interesting when you started talking about pre-mortems, it was something I was going to, going to bring up. And I, and then you start, you know, as you started talking about how difficult it was for people to put themselves in that, that, mm -hmm. that role. Um, you know, I, I, I just sort of was, was struggling not to start laughing because, you know, I've been in the place where we've been through project pre-mortems. You know, we've spent several hours looking at what are all the things that could go wrong and you start listing them up. And then when you go to communicate those with other people, some of the more outlandish ones or the ones that they think, oh no, that will never happen. They were the ones that all of those that we were kind of told, yeah, maybe that's not going to work. Maybe that one's not, we shouldn't include on the risk register. Yeah. All and of those happened and they're all to do with maybe things outside of the, con and I, not much is, is within our control anyway, other than the way we react to things, but they were outside of the project team's ability to influence. It was kind of the other things that could go wrong that did. And we were looking at those going, well, what happens if this happens and what happens there? And of course, some of those we had to, you know, we could, you know, we could build small contingency plans around, but actually they were things that you had to deal with head on. And some of those were very painful dealing with head on. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. Uh yeah, but there's a way to get inside of that challenge. And that's primarily when you look at these unreasonable kind of, uh, you know, people believe they're unreasonable scenarios. That's never going to happen. Okay. Well, you got to look at the critical factors of what must happen in the shorter term that leads to this longer term thing actually happen. And then when you understand what those shorter kind of critical things are that compound up to lead to the bigger thing, you need to then look the next layer down and go, okay, well, what are the drivers of those particular things? And then once you're able to define them, you start to track them and you start to go, okay. And I, I remember there was a, a study years ago and basically what they did is that they had long-term ambition and they go, we're going to go here in 10 years. Great. And then what would happen is that you tell the organization and they're like, you, know, you go to go to the operations people. They're like, okay, so um, this is what we think is going to happen in 10 years. And this is where we're going. And they look at you blank face. They're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, we're trying to close out the quarter. Don't talk to me about 2035. Get out of my office. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a challenge to operationalize mm -hmm. either larger uh, you know, scenarios or long-term strategy ambition and those sort of things. 
And there has to be a mechanism to break that down. That and that's is. where, we're, and that's where a lot of this work sits is, okay, understand what are the critical things that must happen for this scenario to happen. Yeah. Understand what drives those in the shorter term, 12, 18, 24 months. And then build a dashboard and start tracking them and understanding, does there need to be a change in, you know, in taxation treatment of startups and technology? Does there need to be, you know, uh, you know, semiconductor moves, you know, to Europe, you know, or whatever, you know, there's all these different things that must happen for this ludicrous scenario to become true. And if you can link those together and it's a believable narrative, then your destination is suddenly believable. And then that's when you drag it back in because you're absolutely right. And this is what, you know, the industry calls as black swans. And, you know, we're going through a black swan now. You know, go to Bill Gates and ask him, was this a black swan? Not at all. This was, this was a, to use the language, you know, this is a if then. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind. I think we should talk about change and we should talk about change readiness and and actually because you're talking about operationalizing this and so I then would like to bring in um, how do you make change happen in organizations? And what comes up for me right now, change, right? Always fails because of the people dimension. Duh. Um, thank God. Otherwise, psychologists, psychologists would never have a job in life, right? And uh, Exactly. Um, but change is a multi-level thing, right? And it doesn't just happen at the org level. It doesn't just happen at the team or interdepartmental level. It also happens at all individuals, you know, antecedents and, you know, external pressures, internal enablers, internal red readiness, uh, like within person, within group and within organization. How big is the external pressure to change? Um, is the pressure to change bigger than the then the, the pain involved in changing, that's what Edgar Schein talked about, right? We only learn and change if um, the cost of staying the same is so big that I will actually get out of remaining because I, I, I hate change as a fundamentally as a creature. But so st lots of pressure from the outside, lots of readiness from the inside, and then all sorts of things in a black box need to happen for all of those three layers to get synced so that we actually are operationalizing a bright spark idea that some, some uh, strategist and some, some expert at talking at us, and I'm looking at the two of you, uh, will put on my work plate, right, on a Monday morning. Mm. How do we do this? Before we get to that, I also want to okay. add another layer of somewhat annoying complexity onto it, which is the, the unwelcome role of change fatigue. Right. And um, we've had, I yeah, know, right? When we've yeah. Look, uh, you know, <laughs> things are moving faster. There is a particular threshold that individuals, teams, employees, leaders can take. Like even, you know, if, you know, like we're recording this at what the end of April, um, in the last month, mm -hmm. you know, here in London, uh, you know, look at Boris Johnson, the prime minister. 
He's got coronavirus. Mm. His fiance has got coronavirus. Three months ago, he got Brexit over the line. And today he had a son. So you're like, okay, talk about like breakneck. And he's running a country. And you know, he's meant to be given a press release tomorrow and his question time in parliament now. And it's just like, how much can the human condition take before you tap out and you just go, you know what? I don't care. And I've seen this behavior in, in staff, in leaders who are like, you know what? To hell with it. Like, I'm just, I got food in the fridge and they kind of go back to the fundamental kind of basis layers of, of Maslow and they go, okay, well, I'm safe. I got a roof. I got food. Yeah. Okay. I'm leading a multinational organization, but I'm taking two months out psychologically. And again, this, there's this, um, the danger of that overextending, particularly within leaders is, uh, a phrase that I've heard in, in, in human resource world, which is quit in seat. Oh, I've quit yes. in seat. I've mentally just walked away from this because I've hit the change threshold. And you know, when it comes to managing change, I think we have to grab that by the throat, particularly in these times, because change is running at us at breakneck speed, both controllable and uncontrollable. I may I interject? What you're it's describing <laughs> makes perfect sense. Sorry, in in the psychology world, because quit in seat, I think is is a really fascinating term. I've never heard that before. But that, at a neurobiological level, is freeze. If I mentally disassociate from something that is traumatic, I freeze. So, in in the hierarchy of automatic bodily responses to stress, the the highest level of automatic functional stress response that we humans um, engage in and that has put us on top of the food chain is social engagement, seeking out support. Because, and that's why people in the corona crisis connect, send messages to each other. It's an automatic response to put shoulders figuratively onto each other's, put hands on, onto each other's shoulders. That's the highest level, the most effective automatic stress response that our bodies dictate. Precognitive. We don't even think about it. I reach out to you when I see a sign of distress in you, if I care about you. It's social connection is a really functional way of responding to stress. The less functional, but more rewarded Response to stress is fight or flight. We either run faster or we fight harder. That's what we have in common with all the normal mammals. Um, it's not as functional at actually banding together and seeking social support in fighting the enemy, coronavirus, but it's what animals tend to do. We run for it. We, we kick, we scream, or we verbally kick and scream. The lowest level of response that we are conditioned to because we we share the same brainstem with reptiles is freeze and we tend to engage in freeze quit in seat as you call it when it's too traumatic and trauma is too much too fast too soon so if something is too much too fast too soon for a ceo in an organization to handle he basically says I check out mentally. I'm, I'm giving up. Trauma victims do that. Rape victims disassociate from the experience of rape by just mentally checking out because the bodily and, men and, and experiential, um, uh, experience of war or rape is so big that people just disassociate. And CEOs who it's, why well, it's too much, right? Too yeah, fast I, I, coming I, I, at them. That's yeah, what trauma I, I, is. I, I, yeah, I, I feel I, I, I feel incredibly uncomfortable comparing a, a chief executive to a rape victim 
the phenomena that you're referring to, I have seen the behavior in executives mm. that you point to. Mm. I actually can't even say it, but I'm going to compare the two. I can't do it because they're just too far apart. Mm -hmm. The behavior is identifiable. Isn't it? So the drivers that gets there, mm -hmm. when we talk about change, you know, what are the fundamental elements in relation to change? There's also this changeability mm -hmm. that needs to be factored in. And, you know, how many failed uh, initiatives are there out in the world? And what are the drivers of them? Oh, you know, there's unexpected obstacles that we didn't see. There's communi break communication breakdowns. You know, it's, oh, you know, you said X, but I heard Y. So there's this misinterpretation. There's uh, the culture of short-termism in so many groups. It's, you know, we've got to close out the month strong versus transform the organization for 2030. And then probably the other big one is, well, I think there's two. There's what do we kill? Like what, what projects do we kill? Do we stop do? Because if, if the purpose is there and we're taking the opportunity and, you know, we're now creating a bit of an arc, a transition, a strategy arc to go to a new destination, we can't. Well, maybe we should, but we need to be assessed. Should we be bringing the entire organization in its current form mm -hmm. along that way? So then you've got to deal with all the pain and uncertainty that is involved in, you know, closing down projects and reallocating resources and people and capital and all those sort of things. And then as you do that, you end up quite possibly with misalignment to be like, well, now we have this disjointed organization that doesn't really fit in a critical mm -hmm. moment of change. And people are going to get halfway through that and then they're more likely to quit and seek because they're going to be like, this doesn't make sense. You know, I've been here for 35 years. I know how this place works. The leadership lots at mind, ivory tower mentality. So when it comes to change, the communication, here's where I'm looking at you, Matt, the communication component of what we are doing and why we are doing this and also why we are not doing anything else. And here is the thinking behind why we're not doing anything else. I would believe, at least on my side of the fence, is absolutely critical. Yeah, you're right. Um, it, 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 it absolutely is. And, you know, when you look at trying to lead change, uh, there is no one size fits all. Um, I'm, I'm always struck by um, a paper I read uh, during the Cranfield MBA where um, I, I discovered a paper talking about Hyundai and how they purposefully instigated crises to to basically to, to, to help the organization progress. So each year they were, I think it was each year they were doubling their, their production. They were moving incredibly, um, incredibly quickly, but they were, they lagged behind, shall we say, you know, the, the, the typical Western, uh, automakers. And so now what they were doing was they, they would keep creating crises to keep people innovating. And what they did was they built up that adaptive capacity within the organization. So they built that adaptive muscle. So they learned, how do we learn? You know, how does the organization learn? How do we, you know, how do we cope with a crisis? And so they, they really, really flexed that muscle and they did that. And to the point where now it's not uncommon to see a Hyundai on the streets and for them to look just like any other car rather than something that was 10 years behind everybody else. So they did a phenomenal job in that, you know, in that way of creating those crises. Uh, one of the interesting things that they, that they did through that was that not only did they focus on the, the stories that they were telling at a leadership perspective, and I'm a big believer in using storytelling to help not just portray the facts, but also to help move people and, you know, authentic stories, really don't just speak to the, you know, they don't just speak to, you know, eyes. They really sort of resonate and speak to the heart. 
And so you would not only have the, the authentic stories that the leadership were telling, but you'd also be using them to seed the water cooler stories as well. And if you're, and if you've built that adaptive capacity within an organization, all of a sudden, this isn't a huge shock to the system that you've got a one massive crisis. You actually, you've got another crisis coming. You've got these things. What, what, what did we learn last time something like this happened? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you look at uh, so many organizations, the stories they tell, um, is what either makes them succeed or fail. I mean, look at Kodak. You know, they sold film. They were the, they invented the first digital camera with Apple. But the stories the execs told themselves was that film was going to go on for a long, long time and that there was nothing, there was no threat from these digital upstarts because the, because, you know, the CCD detectors weren't good enough. The cameras weren't good enough. And then all of a sudden they were. And all of a sudden, you know, the market share of, you know, the sales of film and the, you know, as we all know, disappeared. And what's even more interesting is then that the companies that were making the small digital cameras didn't really see the threat from the mobile phone coming in with a smart, you know, smartphone mm, with a great camera. Where now the biggest selling point of many cameras is, or of many phones is the camera. Yeah. Um, and so it's so interesting that the stories that people tell themselves about what's important um, gets lost over time. Mm-hmm. And I know that comes down to a strategy thing and it's not necessarily talking about the communication part, but if you look at that message that you, that you could talk about at Kodak, for example, you sort of talk about we're selling film, we're doing this. Oh, we're coming under increased price pressure from X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Or you can be saying, Hey, there's a problem coming down the road, guys. We need to innovate. We need to do this, this, and this. These are the things that we need to be working on. We need to get the CCD camera. Um, as good as film. And those stories are what percolate down. And so I think that's how you avoid a crisis um, mm. internally by being able to do that horizon scanning, seeing what's coming on and believing that an alternative um, reality to just the, the quarter by quarter, you know, shall we say yeah. numbers game is, is, is there. I like that. I like that. Adam, I'm 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 going to jump in here because I enjoyed so much what Matt was saying here about almost how to turn this into practical um, steps. Because I'm hearing as you're speaking, Matt, um, that in order to build up a bit of resilience to face the you know the the risk of failing um, as we are either you know choosing path A or path B and not. Um, going into, you know, change fatigue, as Adam was saying, or even just uh, outright, you know, I don't want to do this, is to, to construct little controlled crises that build resilience, right? It's because resilience only gets built when we're exposed to something that is uh, stretching us. So, and then um, the other part of resilience is you adapt and you learn from it. That's the definition of resilience. You can't develop resilience without having a threat or a crisis or a challenge. Um, your muscles don't get bigger unless you stretch them and you're exposed to something that is feels a bit like more than you can handle. And so I loved what you were saying about uh, Hyundai kind of creating controlled crises manageable, not too much, not too big, not too fast, not too soon, but a consistent stretching, like we stretch our muscles a little bit. And that then builds 
not only we learn from little failures or little successes, but we then develop almost the, the mental self-efficacy or the self-belief that we can handle something bigger because we've actually just got you've we've engineered or Matt Wilkinson and his team have engineered a series of controlled not too scary quite manageable crises that we are now working through in order to feel capable of of taking the risk so that for me is a practical way of saying how am I going to seize that opportunity I'm going to almost have to Keep working at at stretching my comfort zone, but I have to make it manageable. I have to make it controlled. Mm -hmm. I have to have help to communicate to the people on the shop floor who are saying I'm already overworked and I already have a hundred percent workload or one hundred and ten percent workload. It's also Adam. Adam yeah, it's, it, yeah. It, it's also there needs to be a conscious decision within leadership to make this a part of how we do things here. If one of the big social Culture. media companies, I can't remember if it was a Facebook or Twitter or someone, um, from time to time they'll have these internal tests where someone will walk around some of their main server rooms and kick the power cord out of the wall and see what happens. Okay. So, again, it's this creating a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can create a crisis in a controlled condition so then everyone learns how to respond to it, you know, standard crisis conditions. Um, or you can go, we're going to surprise you operationally by kicking the power cord out and this organization better have its act, its act together. So in a way of how we actually think about, uh, in this case, operational resilience, uh, you know, redundancy resilience, these sort of things. Um, you know, if I know that this is how management and leadership treats this business and treats the, uh, and, and tests the, um, the, uh, resilience of the organization, then if I want to work here, I better be on my A game. So th there's this heightened awareness for crisis readiness and for, and for a high propensity, a, a high volume of change and, and these sort of things. Because you're absolutely right. Like in relation to the prior examples, Matt, um, you know, everyone picks on Kodak. It, it, it is the cult classic, but you know, it's, it's the poster child in relation to an organization that fell asleep on its laurels. Mm. And just went, well, you know, we do this. This is what we do. And, you know, by the time it went for bankruptcy, it was, you know, Instagram with 13 staff was getting ready to be sold for a billion dollars. Like, you know, you're just like, how did this happen? It's it's the complacency. No one was kicking the power cord out, out of the wall. So it's, it's you know, and, and then kind of dilute this back to seizing opportunity. There is this organizational readiness and tolerance for change within the company, its decision making, its strategy, its its team to build the resilience to pull everyone through that transition. Because to be frank, at this point in time, like it's the organizations who can be ambitious and can pull it off are going to be the winners. Mm. And there's there's a lot of complexity that falls within those three points. But but that's what everyone is now starting to think about. And the organizations that don't, oh, I fear, are, are going to be up against the wall before they know it. And do you see that innovation in itself, so companies that are inherently perceived as innovative, either historically or, you know, currently, are better off um, to cope with crises because they're there trying to challenge things. So I'm, I'm thinking distinctly of Apple as I look at a number of Apple devices in front of me um, who got, you know, were renowned for being um, innovative, maybe 
now not perceived to be quite so innovative. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I wonder if an organization that, that has that, you know, almost at the heart, a belief that they're there to solve challenges is, is better equipped to then look at, well, this is just another challenge. So yeah. So now we need to figure out, we've got to fix our supply chain in a different way. Yeah. So what? It's just another challenge to overcome rather than the, this is the way we've always done it. Um, and I, and I yeah. wonder how big that, that belief system in what the organization says about itself is, it, you know, plays a part here. So um, I remember there was some research in relation to some white goods manufacturers back at the time of the global financial crisis. And you can imagine you know, how many people are buying fridges during the largest economic downturn in living memory. Um, and, uh, you know, a number of these organizations are up against the wall. They're like, look, we got cash flow for six months. If we don't pull a rabbit out of the bag here, we're gone. And we're, you know, 100-year-old organizations. Um, so in some of them, the play was um, we're going to innovate our way out of this. And the conversation then started. Can you make an organization innovate? Long story short, they put in a structure, very impressive way of how to drive innovation. And they just demanded the organization innovate. I don't mean turn the white fridge red. I mean, innovate, like do it. And they pulled it off. And I think it was Whirlpool off the top of my head or some organization like that. Uh, you know, a couple of years later was one of the most uh, highly awarded innovative organizations in its sector. Now, what made that happen, I don't believe was the belief in the organization to innovate. It was a crisis. It was a do or die moment is that there was a fundamental like, you know, you know, this is the death knell of the organization or we innovate. Is belief that strong? No. And you need a particular sort of character to get someone to believe that, you know, oh, we're going to do this in our job or, you know, I lose my job versus actually losing your job and the company goes down. So there's another kind of contributing factor that pushes people towards you must innovate or you must you know, create and consistently execute on progressive strategies and progressive innovations to stay ahead of the game. Like it's, it, it's, it's a lot. And some people, particularly in academics, I've had these arguments. Um, you know, can you make people innovate? Uh, some say yes, some say no. It's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a very complex world. I actually, um, I'm going to go completely operational on you. I'm going to go operations management on you. And, uh, I think we need to talk about culture. So if we're talking about, you know, an innovative organization or an organization becoming an innovator, that means they are changing the way we do things around here, which is how we define culture. And so culture exists to create unspoken rules that make it simpler for people to engage in action A as opposed to action B. It's like a tradition. So what's the tradition around here? And if you want to move a culture, um, for example, towards innovation, for example, towards other things that you value, what you change is the way people handle problems and the way uh, people get rewarded for their efforts. So Amy Edmondson, most celebrated ops management scholar at Harvard, has, of course, studied psychological safety, also has studied learning in organization. And uh, she is an organizational psychologist that just looks at behavior and what are the drivers for behavior to change or to, to stay consistent. And if we are rewarding a certain behavior, we get more of that behavior. So that means we need to change the performance management system if we want to get an innovative work culture. We don't just get an innovative work culture by creating a belief or a crisis because 
people do what the routines and the processes are that get them to, you know, to get rewarded. And um, performance management and performance measurement is one of the biggest things that gets neglected in organizations when they are saying, we need to create a new culture. We need to maybe create this, this crisis. But actually, the people on the shop floor do the things that get them somewhere at a granular level. And perhaps even more importantly, for changing cultures towards something that could be seen as risky in a tradition that is in an organization that's more traditionally maybe hierarchical or risk averse, is people watch how problems or how innovations or how problems get handled. And so Amy Edmondson's work has clearly demonstrated that there's a continuum. So if something goes wrong, when people take a risk and they they don't succeed, and on the continuum of blaming people for a problem or people praising, leaders praising somebody for taking initiative, taking being innovative, taking a risk, um, if the organization tends, the leadership tends to be towards the, I praise you. And I'm praising is a bit too blunt a word, but you know, I reward you. I celebrate. And it, you as a communication expert might know, of course, much more about what that looks like in an organization. How do we highlight what we value as, as actions? So we can shift the traditions and the way thing, people do things around here towards learning and actually taking risks and innovating in the way that we as leaders handle and respond to failure and to trouble. It's like parents with children. If I want my children to be innovative, I have to allow them to do things that are not in line with how I want to run the shop. And I have to praise them for trying out something different, for learning in a different way, by learning with their heads down, lying on their beds. And believe me, that stuff happens in families. But I have to not blame them and say, that's all rubbish that you are trying to learn with your head, you know, lying on your bed. I have to reward them for trying because I'm not going to get a culture of learning and innovation if I don't reward, reward trying. So that's, again, we're talking practical, right? So what can organizations practically do to seize opportunities to become more innovative, to dare act on spontaneous risks and opportunities here, they can reward their people for trying, even if they fail, even if it doesn't go anywhere. Absolutely. I think one of the things that, that you touched on that made me really think um, was that while I agree with everything you said, mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's one thing that I think that, that, that leaders can also do or organizations can also do, which is, You've, as an organization, you have a group, a herd of people. And as you say, you reward the behaviors and that creates the culture. So you shift culture by, by the things that you influence internally, but also you can help bring people together by and create a much stronger tribe when the risks of, shall we say, failing, um, in an innovation are much, much less. Um, and so they don't hurt your standing or the rest of it. So you minimize the internal risks within that within the herd um but you're also playing up the risks outside of the herd mm. so right now we've got a, a global pandemic we've got people not being able to go to work you know go into offices a whole host of you know thing you know complexity that people are dealing with that three or four months ago they didn't they, they wouldn't have thought about you know problems with supply chains that you know 
who would have thought that we, you know, we can't ship things easily anymore? All of that kind of crazy stuff that, you know, that we're now dealing with. And if we can make the risks on the outside appear as big as they currently appear and the risks on the inside look much, much more comfortable, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you've got the, the, you've got the difference in perceptions of risks. Yeah. And it's then the stories you're telling about the fact that actually what we want you to do is we want you to go off. We want you to experiment. We want you to fail. We want you to fail fast. And all of a sudden you're creating a difference in perception of risk. Um, and I've, I've got a sense that Adam is dying to jump in and say something, so I'm going to let him. Yeah, you can usually know when the pens are going, the hands are going, oh, I've got something to say. No, 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 no. the head explodes, yeah. This is an absolutely fascinating conversation. I remember a good couple of years ago, I was working for a large organization in India, and uh, I was at their all-hands internal meeting. So, you know, there's a small stadium full of people. And there's, you know, there's another 18,000 people dialed into the WebEx, and it's great. And I'm leaning against the back wall with some of the people I'm working with helping them out in this organization. And they're going through the numbers, and the CFO's there, and the CTO's there, and, the C- you know, everyone's doing their bit. And the CEO goes, and now it's time for everyone's favorite part of the meeting. And everyone's like, yeah. And I'm like, what, what, you know, everyone, literally people were standing up cheering like it was Glastonbury. I'm like, okay, what's everyone's favorite time of the meeting? And, you know, it was pandemonium. And they're like, it's time for the co- company's best failed idea award. And here is Ranjit. And out comes Ranjit, who looks like a rabbit in the spotlight. He's like, oh my God, like he's the CEO. And uh, and here's Ranjit. And he's tried to invent, I'm going to make this up, Cold Fusion. And, you know, bless Ranjit. He's wasted, you know, thousands of, you know, hundreds of thousands of rupees on this and da, da, da. But, you know, he failed fast. He met the criteria of what failure looks like in this organization. But this is the behavior that we reward. And here's Ranjit. He gets the photo with the CEO and everyone's losing their mind because everyone's in Ranjit's team like, go Ranjit, like you've done it. You've totally stuffed up the innovation. However, this is creating the culture in the organization that failure, as long as it is controlled, (laughs) is tolerated in this organization. So that's part one. But then that loops back into something that both of you are referring to in relation to the tribe element. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking all of Seth Godin's work that's floating Mm -hmm. forward here from a good couple of years ago in relation to tribes. And I'm putting these two kind of things together. You know, what does it mean in relation to tribal identity versus, you know, kind of from the bottom up? And what does it mean in relation to the tolerance of what innovation, change, opportunistic behavior, which is what this conversation is about, and how we can bring those two together to ultimately uh, enable and activate an organization, a group of people, a team, a parliament, whatever it happens to be, to embrace the opportunity that sits in front of them to do something transformational. Yuta. I think this is fascinating. Um, I will not forget that mental image that I have in my head of this football stadium full of geeky um, tech people celebrating Ranjit for failing fast and to getting his his photo with the CEO. It was great. Because was like say. this is the culture of like it's cool to try stuff. It's cool to have a growth mindset. It's cool, cool to bring on a challenge and learn something independent of the outcome. I will not forget that. And perhaps more um more importantly for the takeaways is actually this what you've been talking about um Matt um, this asymmetry 
of risk perception that, that you've talked about just now. So within the organization, we want the herd to feel a bit more safe and that risk taking has a different flavor. But from the outside, we definitely want to feel the cold wind and we definitely want to feel the adrenaline that guys, if we don't act, we're going to miss the train. I love that. So you call it a different perception. And I think it's, it's asymmetric. And I love that. Did you see how I created some competition between you? Saying so that I think oh, Matt's idea is cooler than yours, Adam. <laughs> and now we fight. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. I, I, I think uh, yeah, this has been a really interesting conversation because when when we look at kind of you know the statement of this session, you know, the courage to act and seize on opportunities. I think the role of psychological safety is an interesting one, and I I think one of my main takeaways is that if pushed too far, it can be a double edged sword. It can breed that conservatism. And particularly when I kind of link that back to even the last 10, 15 minutes, kind of this concept of tribe is ringing really mm -hmm. loud in my head because it might take an, a leader to go, we're going over there. If, you know, in absence of, you know, a, a kind of a decision making vacuum, like some organizations and governments do have, you know, we're going left and everyone's like, why are we doing this? But to foster the tribal buy in, the cultural enablement, the capability enablement to make sure that it brings everyone along for that arc, that long arc, knowing perfectly well that a lot of these longer-term initiatives um, aren't going to be done and dusted in six months. Mm -hmm. However, acting on them is a matter of weeks. Um, and again, like I've, like I've said in prior sessions, I truly believe that what will you know, what happens in the next two years of business will determine the next 10. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, this conversation here is kind of dangerously cementing that mm -hmm. belief and I always like challenging any sort of belief or assumption I have, but uh, I, 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 th I think the criticality of the tribal contribution to getting behind an opportunity um, and truly believe it, some of the work in purpose that we discussed um, and kind of linking that together, I'm going to do some thinking after this. Mm. Matt? Yeah, and so I, I really liked um, what Yitta said about purpose, um, about um, coming back to almost the first thing you said where courage comes from the word heart. Um, and so that to do all of this, you need courage, you need heart. Um, but you only get a stronger heart through exercising it. And so everything that we've said is about really is about building, you know, is about strengthening those muscles, mm -hmm. yeah, practicing and practicing. And when Adam says that it's going to take two to four years before we, you know, that, um, you know, what we do now is going to impact the next two to four years and beyond. Um, it's really about putting in those training plans. You know, uh, I'm no, I'm no stranger to a training plan. And, you know, did, as, as you can see, <laughs> as you can see behind me, I, I, I have a, have a small penchant for, for, for doing obstacle course races. Um, and, you know, the training plans I've put in place, they're small wins every day, every week. They're cumulative. You know, when I started, I was my, you know, my aim was to not finish last, you know, when I moved up to age group, you know, as I, as I train my, my, you know, my horizons get, you know, my, you know, my, my, I want to look higher up the table. Um, yeah, I know I'm never going to get to elite level and I'm too old now to compete with the youngsters and, and to really go for the transformation that's going to be, that will be that huge. Um, but 
still you want to be able to to make those differences and i think that the you know what the way that leaders treat their teams and their organizations now that's really that it's almost it's it's almost like the coach saying i'm going to go in and i'm going to work you really hard and if you have a personal trainer that goes in and makes everything way too difficult you might survive a few sessions and then you're going to give up because the chocolate bar or whatever is is too easy to go and take um and you're going to prefer to do something else and that's when you drop off but if it's small manageable steps it's easy you don't get that um you don't get that shock you know you don't kick into that shock mode i think that's where organizations are going to be people are going to feel safe in them they're going to want to stay in them you're going to build those tribes and they're going to get stronger and stronger um and so i can see that there's going to be some really strong companies that come out of this maybe that didn't weren't perceived as strong before um and there's going to be others that that are going to disappear because the reality is is that they weren't that strong by the measures that are needed in today's normal i like um it really resonated with me right now when you uh, were talking about the training plan mat um because that's a really healthy reframe for me like to turn this into this the scary conversation of acting or seizing on opportunity that might be out there to um, creating a training plan for looking out what we can learn here. And so my so what for this is uh, for leaders and organizations to think about, um, you know, what are the components of this training plan? If they so choose to, you know, take on the challenge to turn this into an, a mental exercise program, right? So the mental exercise program, first we're defining um, what's the purpose of what, you know, why would we even do this? you know what what's in it for us first thing that needs to be clear second thing to work with the tribe within and to turn it into a culture where there's a ranjit who gets celebrated like a rock star for trying and for failing because all of us are learning something and the third so what that i think leaders need to get clear on is to understand what's the cost of not doing it and so What's that cold wind that I somehow sense, but that I might need to feel a bit more consciously that what's the opportunity right now and what am I going to miss if I don't act now, if I don't start the training plan and start the sit-ups and the push-ups yeah. and whatever else cruel things you yeah. could come up for me here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, burpees. Burpees. <laughs> I am actually a huge fan of burpees, I have to say. I hate them. <laughs> I love and hate them, yeah. Adam, just try I, I the think... just try the five minute burpee test and see how many you can do, and then tell me you still love them. <laughs> five minutes? No, I'll pass on that. But it's uh, from a so what mentality, and again, uh, you know, so what is my favorite question and strategy? I think it's the, the the takeaway from this conversation is, I believe, starting to understand the elements on which leaders must now get a grip on to command sustainable and meaningful change mm -hmm. we've touched on so many different elements of this and again the statement is a simple statement the answer is complex if it was easy then there would be a simple answer and we wouldn't be talking about it it's not it's not easy it's not straightforward so there are all these different disciplines on which we've discussed today that good decision making units elt chair board leadership teams decision makers need to really think robustly 
in relation to seizing an opportunity. Because I truly believe to be exceptional, you've only got to be marginally better. Mm. And so many organizations are in panic mode because they haven't exercised that muscle. But now, if you can go through many of the things that we've discussed and put in some structure, what's stopping you? You know, there might be you know, things that need to be overcome, like raising capital or resource allocation or prioritization. But I- I'm absolutely an advocate of being unreasonably ambitious in moments of crisis. So I, I-, I think that that's kind of the so what here. Excellent. Good. And the best thing is there's more to come. <laughs> <laughs> Adam Cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives and organisations across the globe. Dr Yuta Tobias Mortlock is a social psychologist who researches and advises on how to help people at work be and do well. Dr Matt Wilkinson is a marketing strategist and educator who helps life science and tech companies bring disruptive products and brands to market. If you're interested in the presenter's work or wish to sign up for their newsletters, go to thestrategybehind.com. The Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Santiago Castello. Music is composed by Judson Lee. And to find more episodes, visit thestrategybehind.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.